Welcome to the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Randall Jacobs, and our guest today is Craig Kelfi. Craig is the founder of Kelfi Design, the innovator behind the first full carbon frames to race in the Tour de France, the originator of numerous technologies adopted throughout the cycling industry, and on a personal note, has been a generous and consistent supporter of my own entrepreneurial journey. I'm grateful to have him as a friend, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. So with that, Craig Kalfi, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. Nice to be here. So let's start with, what's your background? Give your own story in your own words. Well, I've always ridden bikes. I mean, as a kid, that's how I got around. And that's as you become an older child, you uh, find your independence with moving about the world. And a bicycle, of course, is the most efficient way to do that. And later on, I was a bike messenger in New York when I went to college. And that kind of got me into bike design as much for the uh, desire to make a bike that can withstand a lot of abuse. And later on, I used a bike for commuting to work at a job building carbon fiber racing boats. And during that time, I uh, crashed my bike and needed a new frame. So I thought I'd make a frame out of carbon fiber uh, tubing that I had been making at my job. So this is back in 1987, by the way. So not there wasn't uh, there were no YouTube videos on how to make your own carbon bike. So I pretty much had to invent a way to build the bike out of this tubing. And at the time, there were aluminum lugged bikes. And I just I knew already uh, that aluminum and carbon fiber don't get along very well. So you have to really do a lot of things to to accommodate that. And the existing bikes at the time were, uh, I would say, experimental in the fact that they were just trying to glue aluminum to carbon. And it really wasn't working. So I came up with my own way and built my first bike. And it turned out really well. And a lot of friends and and bike racers who checked out the bike said, I, I really should keep going with it. <clears throat> so I felt like I discovered carbon fiber as a as the perfect bicycle material before anyone else did. Uh, and actually, uh, right at that time, Kestrel came out with their first bike, the, the K1000 or something. Um, anyway, that was uh, that was in 87, 88. And uh, I felt like I should really, you know, give it a go. So I moved out to California and started a bike company. So just to be clear, you were actually making the tubes. You weren't buying tubes. You were making the tubes out of the raw carbon or some prepreg carbon. And then you came up with your own way of uh, joining those tubes. Yeah, I worked on a braiding machine. So it was actually a 100-year-old uh, shoelace braider. Uh, from back in Massachusetts, there's a lot of old textile machinery. And braiding is, uh, you know, you braided socks and, you know, nylon rope is braided. Mm -hmm. So this is a, a 72 carrier braider, which means 72 spools of carbon fiber are winding in and out braiding this tube. And you just run it back and forth through this braider a few times. And now you have a, a thick enough wall tube. Uh, I developed a mandrel and tape wrapping method at that job and came up with a pretty decent way to make a bicycle tube. So that was kind of the beginning of that. Uh, and since then, I've explored all kinds of methods for making tubing, mainly through subcontractors who specialize in things like filament winding and roll wrapping and uh, pultrusion, you know, all kinds of interesting ways to make tubing. 
And that does relate to kind of an inspiration for me where I realized that uh, carbon fiber, you know, high performance composites are relatively young and new in the world of technology where metals are, you know, the metals have been around since the Bronze Age. I mean, literally 5,000 years of development have happened with metals. Carbon fiber, uh, high-performance composites, have only really been around since World War II. So that's a huge gap in development that hasn't happened with composites. So that, to me, felt like, oh, there's some job security for a guy who likes to invent things. So that was my... Uh, kind of fo force to get me to really focus on composite materials. Were you that insightful in terms of the historical context at the time, or is that kind of a retro, a retrospective reflection? I, I think, I don't know. I think I may have read about that. Um, I, I had a friend who had the library card at MIT and I pretty much lived there for a few weeks, absorbing every, uh, master's thesis and PhD thesis on bicycles that they had in their library. And I think somewhere in there was a, a topic on composites and comparing the technology of composites. So I probably got that from some reading I did. Or maybe I did invent that on a, out of thin air. I don't remember. But uh, nonetheless, the, the fact of it is, you know, not not a whole lot of mental energy has been put into coming up with ways of processing fiber and resin compared to metal. So to me, that just opens up a whole wide world of, of innovation. Mm. And so the first frame, was that um, you were creating essentially uniform tubes and then mitering them, joining them, wrapping them as you do with your current bamboo frames or what was happening there? Uh, it was more like the uh, our our carbon fiber frames were laminating carbon fabric in metal dies. Mm -hmm. And those are mitered tubes fitting into the dies. And that's, that's a process I got my first patent on. And it, uh, so in the process of compressing the carbon fabric against the tubes, you're, you end up with these gussets in what is traditionally the parting line of a mold. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. rather than trim them off completely, I, I use them as reinforcing ribs. Yeah. Okay, so that explains the, the that distinctive element that continues with your um, some of your tube-to-tube uh, -tube, uh, frames currently, where you have them. yeah yeah. And the hand wrapping technique from that you currently see on the the bamboo bikes came from developing a tandem frame, or basically a frame whose production numbers don't justify the tooling cost. Um, so that's hand wrapped. That's just literally lashed together. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and a point of note there is I was a Boy Scout growing up and uh, there's this merit badge called Pioneering Merit Badge. And I really enjoyed Pioneering Merit Badge because it involved lashing ro uh, poles together with rope. And the, the pro you had to do with this one project. And I did a tower and it was this enormous structure that went just straight up like a flagpole. But it was it involved a bunch of tetrahedrons uh, stacked on top of each other and lashed together, and you know, culminating in a pole that went up. I don't remember how tall it was, but it was it was really impressive, and everybody you know thought, "Wow, this is incredible!" Stack of poles and some rope, and here we have this massive tower. So anyway, I was into lashing things together since a young age, 
And so I immediately came up with the uh, the lashed tube concept, which is where the now the bamboo bikes are. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a specific pattern to the wrapping, but um, the concept is basically using fiber to lash stuff together. Well, it immediately brings to mind what's possible with uh, the current you know generation of additive production techniques. Uh, whereas before you could make small components and then lash them together to create structures that otherwise aren't manufacturable, now you'd be able to say print it out. Though those you know those printed out materials don't have the performance characteristics of a you know a unidirectional carbon of the sort that you're working with currently. Right. Um, so we've gone deep nerd here. We're gonna I'm gonna pull us out and say okay, <laughs> uh, lots of time for this. This is gonna be a double episode. Uh, so next up, let's talk about how those frames uh, saw their big debut. Yeah, so um, we started making custom geometry frames in uh, about 1989 and and started selling them. And so big and tall, and the the idea of custom geometry frames was, uh, you know, pretty esoteric. And the pro racers were, were using a lot of custom frames. So Greg LeMond uh, was in search of a carbon fiber uh, custom frame builder in uh, 1990, and uh, no one really was doing it. We were literally the only company making custom carbon frame uh, bikes. So he uh, found out about us, uh, effectively discovered us, shall we say, and uh, it didn't take long for him to order up 18 of them for his his, uh, Team Z uh, teammates. He was sponsoring his own team with the Le Monde brand, so we didn't have to sponsor him. He basically paid for the frames and put his name on them, and and uh, now we're now we're on the defending champions uh, Tour de France team. So that was a huge break, obviously, and it was really a pleasure working with Greg and getting to know the the demands of the pro peloton. Uh, you know that really launched us. So that was uh, quite a splash, and you know it, it always is a great answer to the question. Oh, so who rides your bike, kind of thing, and you know you, you have the the full on best one in the world at the time. So so that was a fun thing. And the name of the company at the time was uh, Carbon Frames. Yeah. So anyone yeah. wanting to dig up the historical it's record, just, <laughs> it's just too generic, you know. The, the other. Related to what uh, you're talking about, the adventure bikes. So, yeah, we had to stop. I mean, carbon frames was a terrible name because it, everyone started talking about all carbon fiber frames as carbon frames. So we thought that was cool, you know, like Kleenex, you know. Uh, and then we came up with the adventure bike, you know, a very early uh, adventure bike. And it was just, we called it the adventure bike. And now there's a classification called adventure bikes that, you know, so... <laughs> Uh, again, I think we, we, we went too generic on how we named our, our models. I've drawn from the rich tradition, uh, tradition of, of Greek, you know, uh, philosophy <laughs> for naming my own companies and the like. Yeah. Uh, um, and then next up, uh, so you've worked with Greg LeBond on those frames, carbon frames is up and running and you're, you're producing custom geo frames and you're starting to get at some scale at this point and some notoriety. Um, next up, you were working on your bamboo bikes. Why don't we talk about that? Yeah, that was a um, 
kind of at the at the time it was just a way to get publicity. So at the Interbike trade show, you'd have a a few creative people making some wacky bikes out of beer cans or or other just weird things just to get attention, just just to send the media over to your booth to take a picture of some wacky thing that you're doing. So I thought, yeah, we got to do something like that to get get some attention. And the uh, so I was looking around for some PVC pipe. Maybe I was going to do a PVC pipe bike and I, I wasn't really sure, but I knew that we could just wrap any tube and make make a bike out of literally anything. So um, my dog was playing with some bamboo behind the shop. Uh, she was a stick dog, so she loved to clomp onto a stick and you could swing her around by the by the stick. She's a pit bull and lab mix. Anyway, we ran out of sticks because uh, we only had one little tree in the back, but we did have some bamboo. So she came up with a piece of bamboo and I was swinging her around by it, expecting it to break off in her mouth because I just wasn't really aware of how strong bamboo was. But it turned out it was really quite strong. And uh, I thought, oh, let's make a bike out of this stuff. And sure enough, uh, the bike was uh, quite a attention getter. We got the quarter page in Bicycling Magazine. So that, you know, mission accomplished on that front. And But the bike itself rode really well. Um, when I rode my first carbon bike, uh, the very first ride on my very first carbon bike, I was struck by how smooth it was. It had this vibration damping that was, you know, just super noticeable. And, uh, and that really kind of lit a fire under my butt thinking, wow, this is really cool. When I built my first bamboo bike, I had that same feeling again, how smooth it was. It was amazing for its vibration damping. So uh, I knew I was onto something at that point. Uh, that first bike was a little too flexy, but uh, the second bike I built was significantly stiffer and was an actual real rideable bike. So uh, yeah, from that point, uh, we just started building a few here and there and it was still a novelty item until about uh, 1999, 2000, when a few people who had been riding them were like, I want another one. I want a you know, mountain bike this time. So it was, it was just starting to get known, and uh, we started selling them through dealers. And I mean, there's a lot of stories I can tell on how that evolved and how people started actually believing that a bamboo bike could actually exist in the world. So... It took a while, though. <laughs> I think there's a whole thread that we could tug on maybe in a subsequent episode uh, where we focus just on the bamboo bike revolution. Yeah, yeah, that's um, there's a lot of lot of stuff going on there. I'm actually writing my second book on ba the history of the bamboo bike because there's so many interesting angles to it, particularly in Africa. I'm struck by the juxtaposition of this bleeding edge uh, you know, high-tech material that you pioneered, and then this going back to one of the most basic building materials uh, that we have and building bikes out of that. And in fact, um, on the one hand, there's this, this extreme, you know, difference in terms of the technologization of each material. But on the other hand, there's a parallel in the sense that like carbon uh, in tubes is best, uh, you know, generally in, uh, when it's unidirectional. You know, with maybe some cross fibers in order to prevent it, prevent it from separating, and uh, bamboo also has that characteristic of having you know unidirectional fibers that are bonded together by some uh, you know some other material in, in the in the bamboo. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's very, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, bamboo is amazing just because it grows out of the ground in tubular form. And it grows in a huge variety of diameters and wall thicknesses. Hmm. So if you're looking for tubing, <laughs> I mean, you don't have to go much further. It's it's just amazing that it literally grows out of the ground that way. Just to so, paint a picture for, for folks, too. Um, most of our listeners, I'm guessing, are in North America or you know other uh, English-speaking parts of the world. And when I lived in China, and as, as you've been, you see huge scaffolding, multi-story, you know, big buildings. And the scaffolding isn't made out of metal; it's made out of bamboo lashed together with zip ties and pieces of wire. So it really yeah. speaks to the uh, the structural uh, strength of the material and reliability of the material, um, and you know, should instill confidence when descending down a mountain. Oh yeah. No, it's, I, I remember seeing bamboo and, and scaffolding many, many years ago. And I thought, well, of course. And the other reason they use it in scaffolding is when a typhoon hits and it, it kind of messes up the scaffolding of a construction site. Um, it's, they're back to work on the bamboo construction sites much faster than the metal scaffolding sites mm. where they have, deal with mm-hmm. bent and distorted metal scaffolding um, to replace those and fix that takes a lot longer where bamboo they just bend it back and lash it back together it's it's so much easier there's, there's one more thing on this theme that I want to uh, pull out before we move on which is talk to me about the the sustainability component of it um, starting with how it was done initially and then now with say like uh, biodegradable resins or, or other materials like can this frame be composted? Uh, the short answer is yes the frame can be composted and it, the other cool thing is if you take care of it, it it'll never compost meaning you can prevent it from being composted naturally but if you really want to you know uh, dispose of the frame, uh, it will biodegrade much faster than any other material that bicycle frames are made of. So yeah, the, the renewable aspect, the low energy content of it, it's, it's utterly the best you can imagine. And we're kind of waiting for the world to finally get serious about global warming and start to have some economic incentives for buying products that are in fact uh, good for the environment. Uh, we haven't seen that yet, but we're kind of holding out and hoping that happens. And then we'll see probably some significant growth in the bamboo adoption in the bicycling world. I want to plant a seed that that uh, started to germinate in my head, which is this idea of bamboo as being the ideal uh, material for kind of more mainstream uh, utility bicycles and recreational bicycles. And really it's a matter of the unit economics and economies of scale and consistency of material, which you could make uniform by having uh, highly controlled grow conditions and things like that. Um, but it could be a very localized industry too. Anywhere where bamboo grows, um, this could be produced, which reduces transportation costs, reduces you know issues of inventory carrying and all these things. Um, so let's, let's park that. I want to ask you more about those, about the, the economics of bamboo in a side conversation to see if there's, you know, something yeah. to explore there. Well, there is, I mean, that's, that's what we did in Africa. Same concept as, as why, why would bamboo work in Africa better than the imported bikes from China? 
so that was that was the whole thing around that. Oh, I love it. All right, so there, there will be a bamboo episode, folks. Uh, we're gonna <laughs> gonna continue because there's a lot of ground to cover here. Um, so next up, so you've done done the first carbon frame in the Tour de France. Uh, carbon frames is up and running. You've started getting into bamboo. Uh, what was next? Um, then lots of smaller developments, which have become really important to us from a business perspective. Uh, carbon fiber tandem. We built the first one of those, and then we went to a lateralist tandem design, and it's pretty optimized at this point. So we're, I would say we are the leader in the tandem world in terms of the highest performance tandem bikes. Uh, and then re repairing of carbon frames. That was a big one, uh, which we were kind of pushed into by our customers and other folks who heard that we could repair the Calfee frames and they would send, call up and literally we had a, an in, one inquiry per week, if not mo more often, about like a Colnago that this guy wanted to repair and he heard we could do it on ours and we're like, well, buy a Calfee, don't, you know, I'm sorry, but we can't repair somebody else's frame. You, you'll have to buy one of ours and then you'll know that if you crash it, we can repair it for you. He was trying to make that a, a uh, advantage for our brand. But we couldn't really, you know, do that. So uh, we said, well, if we can't beat them, we'll repair them. And we repaired a, a Colnago first and then onto some specialized, I think, after that. So we we accepted repair jobs and pretty soon it became about a third of our our business. And it's, uh, you know, of course, now lots of other people repair frames. But uh, we started doing that in 2001 or something. And. And we've been doing it ever since. And it's that part's been really interesting to see because we get to literally see the inside of everyone else's frames and look at the weak points. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, they often show up on, on people's frames and we get asked to fix them or even redesign them at that point. So that's been really in interesting to, to me as a technician. And I want to come back to this in a second, but before we lose it, what is a lateralist tandem design? Uh, that So traditional tandems had a, a tube that went uh, from the head tube, usually straight back down towards the dropouts or stoker bottom bracket. And it's, it's a way to stiffen up a frame that's inherently not very stiff in torsion. But uh, with composites, you can orient the fiber uh, in torsion to make a tube significantly stiffer in torsion than, say, a metal tube of similar uh, weight. So we were able to go a little bit bigger diameter and more fiber in the helical angled orientation and make a tandem uh, stiff enough in torsion and get rid of that tube. <clears throat> and for a carbon fiber frame, that was really important because the number of times you have to join the tube, the more expensive it is or the more labor content there is. Mm -hmm. So we were able to reduce our labor content, make the frame lighter and make it stiffer all in one design change. So that was a big, a big revelation. And now I think most of them have copied that design. So it's, uh, it's, it's another time where we, we did something that, that uh, now became the standard. Yeah, one of many from what I've observed and uh, read in the history. Uh, so around this time, or shortly after you started the repair business, you started doing some pretty 
pretty wild frames in terms of pushing the limits of what was possible. Why don't we talk about that? Yeah, yeah, we did. We've done a lot of different types of frames, uh, mostly for show, but um, like the North American Handmade Bike Show is a great venue for just doing something way out of left field. Um, we did a, a bamboo bike made all out of small diameter bamboo. Um, it's I only made one because it was a total pain in the ass to make. Uh, and it was also kind of inspired by the, a request from a guy who was not only a fan of bamboo, but he was a fan of molten style bikes. Those are the truss style frames with small wheels. <clears throat> so we built one of those and uh, with only small diameter bamboo. And we built another one that was uh, a real art piece. So just having fun with that from a you know completely artistic direction is a lot of fun for me because that's my formal training. I, I went to art school and learned about different materials and, and art and composition. Uh, and I was into the structure of materials and how they, they relate to each other. And so my art was more of a form, follow, form follows function kind of inspiration. And uh, so some bikes that I've made were, are not terribly practical, but just explore the, the limits of structure. So another bike I made, we call it the spider web bike, which was literally a, a bike made of just carbon fiber strands, no tubes. And it, it was kind of wild looking and a collector ended up buying it, which is really cool. But you look at this thing and you just couldn't imagine that it, it you could actually ride it. But uh, it actually does ride fairly well. It's a bit fragile. If you crash it, it would be kind of dangerous. But, you know, stuff like that, I like to to do that occasionally think of uh like biomorphic design or like hyper optimized design that maybe doesn't have the resiliency but within very strict parameters will perform higher than anything else that you could you could create absolutely yeah those are really fun i mean i'm really inspired by natural forms and uh you know the the some of the new computer aided techniques for designing are are right in those lines and mm -hmm. so, yeah, I follow that pretty closely. A little sidebar. Um, I don't know if you uh, know of uh, Nick Taylor, the guy who uh, created the uh, Ibis Maximus in front of the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. Um, no, I'm, I, I don't think so. I'll, I'll introduce you to his work at some point, but he's another one of these people who, um, very avid cyclist, is not in the bike industry, but is, uh, does a lot of trail building and the like, and is, in, is a sculptor really focused on um the form of uh you know biological shapes and, and materials and and things hmm. of this sort uh i think that there's a lot uh i'm actually curious to dive more into your your non-bike artistic work for a moment mm -hmm. uh and and how that got infused into your work with the bike yeah so i haven't done a lot of you know just pure fine art sculpture in a long time. But when I was doing that, it was, it, I was doing a lot of things that would fool the eye or um, take some material and, and push it to its limit. So I was, I was doing stuff that was, um, uh, you know, trying to create a, almost like a physical illusion not just an optical illusion, but a, but a physical illusion or like, how could you possibly do that kind of thing? 
that was a, a theme of my sculpture shortly after Pratt. So, for example, just take one example of a, a sculpture that I actually got a lot of credit for in classes at Pratt. It was a uh, big block of oak. It was a cutoff from a woodworking shop. It was about a foot in, let's say, a foot cube of oak. And I would, uh, so I, I uh, raised the grain on it with a wire brush. And then I block printed on oak tag paper, um, some black ink on, rolled onto the oak block and made a revert, uh, basically a print off of each face of the, of the block. And then I carefully taped that paper together to simulate a paper block of the oak chunk that I, I had. So now I had a, a super light paper version of the oak block, and then I hung them on a balance beam, which I forged out of steel. But the hanging point was way close to the oak piece. And if you looked at it from three feet away, you just your brain would, would just start hurting because you couldn't figure out how is this even possible and because it really looked amazing super hyper real anyway it just looked amazing and and it was fun to get the effect of how the hell did that did he do that what's what's the trick here there's something going on that's not real or it's not uh it's not physically possible and i kind of got that feeling with the carbon fiber bike when we when we built the first bike, everyone would pick it up and go, oh, that's just too light. It's not even a bike. It's a plastic bike. It's going to break instantly. So that was sort of a relation from, from those days to the, uh, to the bike. You ever come across Douglas Hofstadter's book, Gödel Escherbach? No, but I'd be interested to read it. Definite shortlister. Um, uh, you've come across M.C. Escher, of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, are there any parallels or any inspiration there? Um, not very direct, I'd okay. say. Um, yeah. Who your Who are your inspirations, or what What would you say your creative energy is most similar to? I probably I'd say Buckminster Fuller. Mm, yeah. yeah, I I studied his work in depth. You know, not only the the geodesic dome stuff, but also his vehicles, the uh, Dymaxion vehicle, mm -hmm. and the yeah. So there's there's a bunch of stuff that he was involved with that I'd say I'm parallel with as far as my interest goes. What book should I read? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> where, where do I start if I have limited yeah. time? Yeah, it's a tough one. He's actually really difficult to read too. His writing is not that great. I pretty much look at his, uh, his design work more than his writing. Okay, His so whose book, whose book about Buckminster Fuller should I read? <laughs> Good question. I'll, I'll catch up with you on that later because there's yeah. a few of them that are worth, worth a look. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, let's talk about 2001, uh, your Dragonfly. Yeah, the Dragonfly was an interesting project. It was, so Greg uh, Lamond had asked me, like, I want an even lighter bike. He was constantly pushing on the technology. And I said, well, there are some really expensive fibers that are starting to become available, but, um, you know, this would be a $10,000 bike frame and, you know, it's only going to be a half a pound lighter. And he said, well, I don't care. I just, you know, I, I need it for racing. I mean, I'm, you know, when, when I'm climbing Alpe d'Huez with Miguel Indurain and if he's got a lighter bike, 
than I do, then I'm just going to give up, you know, in terms of the effort. So he needs to have that technical advantage or at least be on the same playing field. So the reason why he'd spend, you know, $5,000 for a half a pound of weight savings was pretty, pretty real. So, but it took until about 2000, 2001, after he had long retired <clears throat> to um, really make that happen. So the, the fibers I was talking about were really high modulus fiber that was very fragile, too brittle really for any use. So we came up with a way to integrate it with um, boron fiber. Uh, it, it actually was a material we found uh, through special specialty composites out of, uh, out of Rhode Island. Uh, they uh, do this commingled boron and carbon fiber uh, hybrid material which was, um, they were looking for use cases for it, and the bicycle was one of them. So uh, we built a prototype with their material, and it turned out to be not only really light and really strong, the, the boron made it really tough. So carbon fiber has uh, the highest stiffness to weight ratio in tension of any material you can use. Boron <clears throat> is the highest stiffness to weight ratio in compression as a, as a fibrous material that you can integrate into a composite. Mm. So when you mix them, you now have a combination of materials properties that are just unbeatable. It's like uh, concrete and rebar almost, or, or well, not quite. I'd say that's a good um, analogy for composites in general. <clears throat> but now we're talking about the extreme edge of, of performance where um, we're looking at the, the most high performance material for certain conditions, compression versus tension. These, these are conditions that are existent in a bicycle tube all the time. So one side of the tube is compressing while the other side is in tension as you twist the bike. Uh, and then it reverses on the on the pedal stroke, so it has to do both. Now carbon fiber is quite good at that, but in compression it suffers, and that's why you can't go very thin on the wall and make it um, withstand any kind of impact, because it's it's got a weakness in its um, compressive side. So uh, it's, it doesn't take abrasion very well either. So Boron, on the other hand, does take abrasion very well, and it's incredibly high compressive strength-to-weight ratio and compressive stiffness-to-weight ratio. These are two different things, by the way. <clears throat> so when you combine those into a tube, it's pretty amazing. Uh, they're just really quite expensive. So we came up with the Dragonfly uh, in 2001, and it, it was at the time the lightest production bike yet it also had the toughness of a normal frame. And that's that's right around when the Scott Addict came out, which was a super thin wall, large diameter uh, carbon frame that was really fragile. Um, so that was sort of a similar weight, but not nearly as tough as uh, as the Dragonfly. Bore, well, to go a little bit deeper on this, so what is the nat like? What is the nature of the boron? Is it a like? Is it a, a molecule? Is it a filament? So you have you have carbon filaments. Is the boron, um, you know, is that are you uh, putting it into the resin? How how is it commingled? 
It's a it's a filament, basically, a super thin wire. You're essentially commingling it in when you're creating the tubes and then using the same resin to bond the entire structure together. That's right. Got it. And this, so then this is, uh, if you were to add then say like graphene to the resin separately, it would be a compounding effect. Um, I don't know if you have, uh, I mean, I assume you've done some stuff with graphene. Yeah. Uh, I've done a little bit. Graphene is a really great material. It does improve the toughness of composites. Uh, it's again, also very expensive to use, uh, in a whole tube. Usually it's used in smaller components. Uh, not so much on the whole frame, uh, it's, and it and it's um, its best uh, use is in preventing the initiation of cracking, so it stops the micro cracking that starts with a failure mode, and that that's a great a great thing. But if your laminate's too thin to begin with, that the, all the graphene in the world isn't going to help you. So for for really minor uh, wax, it'll help. But for anything substantial, it's it's going to break anyway. So you have to start out with a thick enough laminate to get the toughness that you're looking for. Uh, graphene is really great for highly stressed areas, which might start cracking from uh, fatigue or just the design flaw of a stress concentration. So it's got a number of purposes. Uh, it's great for uh, like pinch clamp areas, you know, places where the mechanical a stress is so high on a on a very localized area. Um, so yeah, graphene's wonderful. We didn't get into it too much because um, it's just it just wasn't practical for our applications and how we make the frames. But uh, some companies have started using graphene, and it's it's pretty interesting stuff. Uh, we did some experimentation with it early on, and are looking at it for the future. And my understanding is. Uh... You know, I haven't do gone too deep into like the intermolecular physics, but it's essentially like you have a piece of paper and if you start tearing the paper, that tear will propagate very easily. And then the graphene is almost like little tiny pieces of tape randomly uh, and evenly distributed across the material that makes it so that that fracture can no longer propagate in that direction. And it has to change direction where it bumps into another graphene molecule. And yet the graphene Essentially, when we tested, it was doubling the bond strength of the resin. So in terms of pulling apart the different layers of laminate and then mm -hmm. um, increasing the toughness of, say, uh, a rim made with the exact same laminate in the exact same resin with 1% graphene per mass of resin, yep. increasing the toughness of that rim structure by 20%, which is pretty cool. Right. The, challenge yeah. is that, the challenge is that it lowers the temperature uh, the the glassification points of the resin and so you know a rim is like you know there are if you're going to put it on the back of your car like you know that's not a normal use case when you're riding but you know it's it's something that just makes it less resilient to those sorts of you know people put it on the back of the car too close to the exhaust and they melt the rim so we're having to experiment with some high temperature resins that have other issues oh yeah yeah that's rims are a great place for graphene just because they're in a place where you'll have some impacts but yeah temperature management is an issue um so yeah that's the high temperature resins are, are another area that that uh we're experimenting in uh wrapping electric motor uh rotors with with a high temperature resin and carbon uh wrap mm -hmm. so that's a whole other area but i'm, I'm familiar with that stuff
which we'll get into in a second. Um, park, park that one because that's a fun theme. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about a rim structure. It seems like boron on the inside, graphene on the outside um, to deal with like mm-hmm. the com- high compressive forces between the spokes and then the high impact forces on the external. We'll, we'll, yeah. The material we use is called high bore. You can look that up, H-Y-B-O-R. And they're they're actually coming back with new uh, marketing efforts. They're they I think the company got sold, and then um, the new buyers are are re- revisiting how to how to spread the use of it. So you, they might be real interested in supporting a rim project. Mm. Uh, to be continued offline. <laughs> um, all right. So then we've got your carbon fiber repair surface. We talked about the dragonfly. Um, it's a great segue into engineering and design philosophy. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, well, it's to me, it's all about form follows function. And uh, when something works so well functionally, it's going to look good. That's uh, that's why trees look great just by themselves. Um, mm. That that's you know coming back to the na- natural world. You know that's why we have a nautilus shell for our for our logo. It's the form follows function aspect of that just makes it look beautiful for some reason. You look at something from nature, you don't really know why is it beautiful. Well, the reason is the way it's structured, the way it's evolved over millions of years, has resulted in the optimum structure. So mm-hmm. for for me as a as a human being, artificially trying to recreate stuff that's been evolved in nature. Um, I, I look closely at how nature does it first, and then I'll apply it to whatever I'm dealing with at the moment. And so that's how I, that's how I design stuff. There's uh, the Nautilus shell example, like the, you know, the golden ratio and the way that you know, really complex systems tend to evolve towards very simple, fundamental primitives of all design. Yeah, yep. Yeah, there's some basic stuff that that seem to apply everywhere. So with your carbon fiber repair service, so you started to see some of the problems with that were emerging with these um, large tube thin wall designs that were being used to achieve a high strength or sorry, a high stiffness to weight, but then compromising in other areas. So let's talk about that. Yeah, it's. um you know, designing a carbon fiber bike is actually really quite difficult. There's so much going on. There's so many uh, things you have to deal with, high stress areas that you can't really get around. There's there's a lot of constraints to designing a, a good bicycle frame. Um, and then you're dealing with the tradition of, of how people clamp things on bikes, you know, stem clamps and seat post clamps and... Uh, you know, that type of mentality has is still with us with the carbon, which is carbon doesn't do well with. So a lot of companies struggle with that and they'll come up with something that on paper or in their CAD model and their finite element analysis sort of works. But and then they go into the real world and they have to deal with real situations that they couldn't predict in the on the computer and they get a problem with uh you know, a minor handlebar whacking the top tube situation, which shouldn't really cause your bike to become dangerous. But in fact, that's what happens. So you've got, um, 
you know, uh, weak points or vulnerabilities in these really light frames. And if you're not expected to know what the vulnerability is as an end user, and you don't know that if you whack part of the bike in a, in a minor way that you normally wouldn't expect to cause the frame to become uh, weak, then the whole design is a, a question. So you have to consider all these things when you design a bike. And a lot of companies have just depended on the computer and their finite element analysis to to come up with shapes and designs that uh, are inherently weak. And um, people get pretty disappointed when they're when the minorest of, of incidents causes a crack in the frame. And if they keep riding the bike, the crack gets bigger and then one day, you know, I mean, most people decide to have it fixed before it gets to be a catastrophic situation. But, uh, you know, it gets expensive and, um, you know, it's it's sad, actually. It, another motivation for getting into the repair business was to save the reputation of carbon fiber as a legitimate frame material. You know, these types of things don't happen to thin wall titanium frames. You know, a thin wall titanium frame will actually withstand a whole lot more abuse than a thin wall carbon frame. So it's just hard to make large diameter thin wall titanium frames that are stiff enough and, and not without problems of welding, you know, the heat affected zones. <clears throat> so carbon fiber is, is a better material because it's so much easier to join and to, to mold. But if you you have to design it properly to to withstand normal abuse. And if you're not going to do that, then there should at least be a repair service available to uh, keep those bikes from going to the landfill so frequently. And so that's what we do. We, we offer that and we even train people how to do carbon repair service. Mm. So that's um, that's something we've done in order to keep bikes from just getting thrown away. Uh, I think I've shared with you, I'm in the midst of uh, doing a, a, a pretty radical ground up design, which is way off in the future. So I'll be picking your brain on that. But it immediately makes me think of the inherent uh, compromises of current frame design and manufacturing techniques, including on our frame. And in our case, the way we've addressed that is through not you know, going with lower modulus carbon, you know, T700, maybe some T800 in the frame. Uh, and then overbuilding it in order to have resiliency against impacts, but then also these sorts of um, micro voids and other imperfections that are an inherent process of any uh, manufacturing uh, system that involves hand laying of materials in a complex, you know, eight, uh, sorry, 250 uh, piece, you know, layup. Like there's, there's, there's even that like human elements that you have to design a whole bunch of fudge factor into to make sure that when mistakes are made, not if, but when mistakes are made, that there's so much uh, overbuilding that they don't end up in a, in a catastrophic failure. That's right. Yeah. 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 You have to have some safety margin. And the mandrel spinning process that you were describing essentially eliminates a lot of that. And you're starting to see, I mean, with rims, that's the direction that rims are going in. Everything is going to be automated. It's going to be knit like a sock and frames mm -hmm. are a much more complex shape. Um, but you're starting to see, uh, actually, you probably know a lot more about the the automation of frame design than I do. Um, what do you see, like as the as the endpoint, at least with regards to the um, like 
filament-based carbon fiber material in frames? Like, where could it go with sufficiently yeah. advanced technology? The, the um, robotics are getting super advanced now, and there's this um, technique called, um, uh, they just call it fiber placements or auto automated fiber placements, which is a fancy word for a robot arm winding fiber, you know, on a mandrel or shape, uh, and then compressing that and, uh, you know, molding that. So it's it's where your a robot will orient a single filament of of carbon fiber uh, continuously all around the uh, the shape that you're trying to make. They do that in aerospace now for uh, really expensive rockets and satellite parts. But the uh, technology is getting more accessible, and uh, so robotic trimmers are another one. So we're in fact we're getting ready to build our own robotic arm trimmer for uh, resin transfer molded parts. That's where the edge of the part that you mold gets trimmed very carefully with a router. And But imagine instead of just a router trimming an edge, you've got a, a robot arm with a spool of fiber on it, wrapping the fiber individually around the whole structure of the frame. Uh, no, no people involved, just, you know, someone to turn the machine on and then turn it off again. So that's kind of coming that, that is a future, uh, it hasn't arrived yet. Certainly maybe for simpler parts, but, uh, frame is a very complex shape. So it'll take a while before they can get to that point. It having to, yeah, being able to essentially, uh, spin a frame in one piece is seems to be the ultimate end game yeah i think we need to i think the the uh genetically modified spiders would be a better way to go <laughs> they might they might help us uh accelerate the design process yeah yeah just give them some good incentives and and they'll they'll make you set a really incredibly strong you know spider wound frame well it does it speaks to the 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 biggest challenge I see with that, which is you have to go around the shape. And so if you're going through a frame, like it's essentially the triangle is a ring. And so you need some way to like hand off the, 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 the filament carrier from one side to the other constantly. Otherwise you'd just be able to spin it, you know, it would be pretty straightforward. So maybe the frame comes in a couple of different sections that get bonded, but then those, those subsections don't form a ring. And so you can, you know, you can move them around instead of the machine in order to... Well, there's these things called grippers. So the robot grips it and then another arm, grip, you know, lets go and the other arm picks it up. And then there's, like in weaving, there's this thing called the flying shuttle, which mm -hmm. my ancestors invented. It's where the shuttle for that, that does yeah. the warp drive. It's Your ancestors were involved with the flying shuttle? Yeah. yeah. That's one of the... Uh... All right, that's that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's a really interesting. I mean, I it's the uh, Draper Corporation. If you want to look it up, mm -hmm. um, I know Draper. They were the Draper Manufacturing made the looms back in the Industrial Revolution in the Northeast. Where, I, where I'm sitting the, currently in Waltham, which was one of the first mill cities, um, not far yeah. from Lowell. Yeah, so all those mills were were our customers, and they would buy the Draper looms, um, and they were the automated uh, looms with a flying shuttle was a big deal back then. And so they, they made a lot of 
a lot of those looms and and that's basically what sent me to to college with a trust fund. <laughs> so I so got you're lucky a, tru- you're on a that. trust fund baby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but that's yeah, that's the world I I came out of. And so the the idea of taking a spool of of material and handing it off as you wrap around something is is really not that difficult. Okay, so then you can do it in a way that is resilient to probably 10,000 handoffs over the course of weaving a frame and you can expect that it's not going to fail once. That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Then that, that's the hard part. Got it. The hard part is probably dealing with the resin and the, and the uh, forming and the getting Mm -hmm. a nice surface finish. Yeah. Those are the harder parts. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I'm thinking about, uh, SpaceX's attempts to create a, a giant, uh, carbon fiber, uh, fuel tank. And they actually mm-hmm. had to do the um, the heating of the resin at the point of uh, depositing of the filaments, and yeah. you know that's a really that's- challenging process because you can't build an autoclave big enough to contain a fuel tank for a giant rocket. Bicycles don't have that issue, but right, yeah, the filament winding technique, which is how all those tanks are made, is is pretty amazing, and the large scale of those those big rockets is phenomenal i mean you, there's a couple of places in utah that make those and it's just seeing such a large thing spinning and a, a fiber wrapping around it rapidly is is really quite inspiring yeah yeah it's very very cool stuff and that's again a whole nother thread about the uh the utah-based uh composites industry that got its start in aerospace you know advanced aerospace applications which Envy and others came out of used to be edge composites, yep. which you worked with Envy. You designed their tubes early on, right? Well, yeah, the whole history behind Envy and quality composites back in the late 80s, literally, uh, when I first came out to uh, actually, it's still, I, I think I ordered them in Massachusetts and took delivery in California, but it was uh, quality composites in, out of Utah. Uh, Nancy Potish was the owner of that. Also an MIT graduate who um, who started uh, roll wrapping carbon fiber in the tubular form, and I'm pretty sure we were the first roll wrapped carbon tubes uh, for bicycles that she made, and um, uh, that evolved to uh, edge composites. So they so quality composites became McLean quality composites, and then McLean the guys who broke away from that, went to start Envy, or Edge, I guess, which became Envy. So, yeah, those same guys brought that technology, and we've been the customer ever since. And now there's yet another spinoff. The guys who are making the tubes at Envy have spun off and started their own company uh, in a cooperative venture with Envy. So they let them go, basically. <laughs> and uh, we're working with, with those guys. So it's they're just following the the top level of expertise. Very interesting stuff. Um, yeah. So so where else do we go in terms of the? I mean, this is about as deep uh, composite, deep nerdery as we can get in, into composites and so on. And uh, given that we're already here, we might as well, well just you know dig ourselves deeper. Yeah. Um... Well, so just on the roll wrapping, the thing that um, I remember one of the cool innovations that Nancy came up with was the double D section um, tube where she would roll wrap two D shaped tubes 
stick them together and do an outer wrap on the outside. So it was an incredibly efficient way to do a ribbed tube mm, or yeah. with a single rib through the middle. She pretty much invented that. Uh, we started doing something with that on chainstays uh, to get more stiffness out of a chainstay. But um, I, I just, for some reason, that image flashed in my mind about some of the innovative stuff that, that has been going on that people don't really see. It's, and that's what I'm saying before, where the, uh, the technology of composites has um, it's got a long way to go. And it's, there's all kinds of stuff going on that are, are, is brand new. Uh, yeah. Most people don't see it because it's all process-oriented more than product-oriented. But for guys like me, it's really fascinating. Makes uh, it reminds me of um, a technology owned by a Taiwanese carbon uh, frame manufacturer, pretty large-scale tier one that I had spoken to, where they're doing uh, that bracing inside of the forks. I don't think they're doing anything especially advanced in terms of how it's manufactured. I think they just have a uh, the the inner um, you know, whether it's a bag or it's a uh, you know EPS insert, and then they're just bridging uh, between the wall, two walls of the uh, of the tube of the the fork leg uh, with another piece of carbon that gives it more lateral structure with zero uh, impact on the um, fore aft compliance, which is a really cool yeah. technique. That sounds like Steve Lee at Gigantex. Uh, this was YMA. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. The Gigantex folks, I haven't, I don't know if I've interacted with them yet, but um, but yeah. Well, uh, yeah. There's some amazing innovation coming out of Taiwan. Yeah. They're, those, they're, they're so deep into it. It's, it's a fun place to go and, and see what they're up to. This actually brings me back to um, I, I did had a conversation with over with Russ at Pathless Pedaled and he was asking like you know is, tell me about the quality of stuff made made over in Asia and I was like well you know in fact it's generally best to work with their production engineers because they're so close to the actual manufacturing techniques and they're the ones innovating on those techniques and in mm -hmm. fact um, you know even specialized up until recently did not do carbon fiber in house. Mm -hmm. They outsource that, you know, they, they do some of the work in-house, but then the actual iteration design for manufacture and all that is being done by the factories. And rightfully so, the factories know it better, like being cl close to the ground, though dealing with someone with yourself, you're someone who could go into a factory and be like, okay, let's, let's innovate on this. Yeah, uh, yeah. So then 2011, um, first production gravel bike. Uh, yeah, yeah, we came up with the uh, adventure bike, we call it. Um, it was also the first one that did the uh, 650B uh, tire size uh, that can be used with a 700 by 42 or so. So mm -hmm. mixing, you know, going bigger tire sizes on a slightly smaller rim on the same bike as you'd run a 700C in a 35 or 40 millimeter tire. Um, yeah, so the adventure bike has been a, a, a real fun area for us as far as uh, just developing a do-everything, be-everything bike. Yes. And the geometry of that was kind of an endurance road geometry, right? That's right. It's a road bike effectively, but with a few, a few uh, tweaks for riding off-road. 
So then this, this yeah. word gravel bike is kind of muddled. Um, I, I, I never liked it, frankly. Uh, it's a marketing term. I remember it specialized when we were doing the, the diverge. Um, you know, it was still kind of honing in on what these bikes were. Uh, but you could argue that like, you know, gra- you know, everyone's road bike was a gravel bike when you just put the biggest tires that would fit and ride it on dirt. But this concept of a, a one bike, it seems to be what you've pioneered. Like you can have a single bike that will be your road bike, perform, handle, give you that that experience when you put road wheels on. But then you can put these big 650s on there and have a you know an off road crit machine that is highly competent in in rough terrain. And so uh, yeah, so yeah, that and that's very much my design philosophy, as you know as well. Uh, yeah. you know, fewer bikes that do more things. Yeah, we have this uh, kind of a marketing phrase for you know how the n plus one concept where you know how many bikes do you need well just one more than what you've got Mm -hmm. well we did the n minus one concept with our mountain bike which (laughs) can also be a gravel bike or a adventure bike but it's uh it allows you to change the head tube angle and and use different uh fork travel suspension forks Mm -hmm. on on the same frame uh, and of course, swapping wheels out is is always a thing. So yeah, the n minus one concept, where we just need less stuff, you know. So I, I reinvented that when I started thesis. <laughs> we used to say like n <laughs> n minus three, you know, it replaces yeah. your road bike, your gravel bike, your, your road bike, your cross bike, your um, light duty cross country bike, uh, your adventure bike, actually as well. You know, load these things up. Uh, yeah, very much a philosophy that. Uh, I think it's so good that the, despite its efforts to come up with new um, subcategories, for example, by having gravel bikes now run oversized 700 wheels and extending the geo and going with these really slack head angles in order to accommodate that wheel size, I actually think that the the perfect form, the the form that things want to evolve towards, is actually what you created in the first place, which is the one bike that does all the things and does them well. And depending on the wheels you put on them. Um, we'll do, we'll, we'll transform. Uh, and you know, we've, we've talked a little bit about geo changing, uh, oh, yeah. you know, and things like this, which you have a bike that, that does that. Why don't we uh, talk a bit about that in the technology behind it? The Cephal, you mean? Yeah. Where we change the geometry of the head tube mm-hmm. and the bottom bracket to, uh, to accommodate what you're using it for. Yeah. The concept there is to, if you're on a long ride, to be able to change the geometry of your bike mid-ride. So with an Allen wrench, you uh, basically swap these flip plates out on your head tube area. And so you climb, you can climb with one geometry and descend with another. And to me, that's, that's really fun because the climbing, if, you, if you're climbing up a, a, a long, steep climb on a bike that you're going to descend you know, back down on, uh, you really don't want the same geometry. It's you're compromising in one or the other. It either climbs great or it descends great. It's rarely both or it really can't possibly be both because they're just doing two different things. So if you can swap out these flip plates and change the head tube angle, which is really all you need at that point, um, then you have a bike that climbs great and descends great. So for me, that was the goal of, uh, just making a better mountain bike. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fact that it can be converted into other bikes for different disciplines is a whole nother angle. Uh, and you can even do that. Perhaps you wouldn't do it, you know, on the trail, but let's say you show up 
let's say you're on a trip, an adventure, uh, maybe out to Utah, for example, where you're riding slick rock, but you're also going to go up, you know, into the mountains. Um, you'll have you you might want to have different different fork travels or different fork uh, options, so you can bring a couple of different forks and swap out a fork change your flip plates and have a bike that's awesome for slick rock and then another one that's awesome for for the bike parks mm -hmm. so you know to me it would and but it's only one bike and you know you don't need you know three bikes so that that just uh that's the design result of a bike where you can change the head tube angle on and the and really how much head tube angle adjustment is there on there uh, it's a, a plus or minus four degrees. Okay, so that's in, that's substantial. That's a lot. Yeah, <clears throat> that, I mean that's transformative, really. I, yeah. I work in increments of you know half a degree. Yeah, these are are half degree increments. Um, right now, one degree, but we can easily do half degree increments. I find that one degree is is really enough. Yeah. Um, especially when you have the option of t of tweaking the same bike, so. The reason we focus on these half degree increments on a production bike is to dial in the best compromise between two two ways that it's going to be used. Mm -hmm. When you don't need to compromise, you can go a full degree in the other direction and not worry about the fact that it's it's not going to perform as well, you know, in super steep terrain because that flip chip is not uh, the right one for the super steep scenario. Just change it out or flip it over to, uh, to when you approach the really steep stuff. And it's, so, yeah. it's applicable for mountain bikes particularly because the, I mean, the slack, the long slack geometries that, that have emerged in recent years make a ton of sense for mountain biking, especially descending. But when you're ascending, it ends up being so slack that you get wheel flop you get the front end lifting. The bike naturally wants to, to tilt back. You don't have that on a gravel bike currently. And if you don't, if you're not adding a huge suspension fork, you're never going to be descending terrain that is so technical that you need those slacked out angles. So it sounds like something that's very much could be applied to gravel bikes, but that you know for the mountain bike application is actually pretty game changing. Yeah. Well, on gravel bikes or adventure bikes, um, uh, it's actually helpful if you're if you're let's say you're a roadie. And you're starting to go off road. And so you're driving these gravel trails and then you're starting to get into more interesting off road excursions with that same bike. But your experience on steep terrain is limited because you're, you know, you're a roadie. You've, you're all your muscle memory and all your bike handling memory comes from the road and a little bit of dirt road stuff. Now you're kind of getting into serious off road stuff and you want to try a a shortcut descent, uh, you know, down something kind of crazy. Uh, let's say uh, you're not very good at it in the beginning and you take your time and you you don't have a, a bike that can go that fast down such a trail. Then you change it out as you get better at it, as you increase your skill level and your confidence level, you might want to go a little faster. So you want a bike that can go a little faster safely and go for that slack head angle which is designed to get higher speed. So it's great for evolving skills and evolving terrain as you start exploring more radical stuff. So that that's the other reason to do it. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense and in fact any you know what I'm working on going forward 
very much has a uh, one of the core you know foci is uh, being able to tailor the geometry um, as close to on the fly as possible. Uh, yeah. I think you know if you want it to be on the fly, you're going to add a, a huge amount of added structure and complexity and weight. But having it be when you swap the wheels, there's a, you know very little to do. You know this sort of thing. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, the whole idea is to is to be able to go and have really fun adventures. After all, I wrote the book on adventures. See, here's uh, this is a this is the commercial part of our our uh, oh, plug. Wow. Is uh, this book I wrote about a trip I took back in the in the early '80s? Uh, it's it's a kind of a it has nothing to do with bikes except that there is a section in there where I made a, a canteen out of bamboo in the Congo, but it's a pretty crazy trip and uh, and I just called it Adventures. It's on um, Amazon if anyone wants to buy it. <laughs> I I will get a copy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, very, very cool. Um, we skipped over one, which is the Manta, which is another interesting innovation. Yeah. Suspension on a road bike. I mean, that's, uh, I keep saying that's going to be the future and it hasn't happened yet, but I, I still believe that suspension road bikes will be the main type of bike being ridden in the highest levels of racing. Oh, interesting. Uh, so you think suspension versus say, um, wide tubeless aerodynamically optimized rims with a 30 mil tire run at lower pressures. You think the suspension has a sufficient benefit relative to that to offset, say, the structural complexity or weight? Yes. So uh, the big tire thing, the trend towards bigger tires is really a trend towards suspension. It's pneumatic suspension rather than mechanical suspension. Well, as our regular listeners know, this is a topic that's very much near and dear to my heart. I talk often about the benefits of pneumatic suspension. So this will be an interesting place for us to stop and really dive in when we follow up in part two of this conversation, which Craig and I will be recording on the Thursday after this episode is published. So if you'd like to participate in the conversation, please tag us in the ridership, direct your questions and comments our way, and we will try to incorporate them into part two. And of course, if you haven't already, come join us in the ridership. We'd love to have you, and there's a lot of innovation that'll be happening there in terms of how we use new digital tools in order to facilitate the, the community that we want for offline connection, exchange, and experience. So with that, until next time, as Craig would say, here's to getting some dirt under your wheels.